Welcome to Critical Matters, a sound podcast covering a broad range of topics related to the practice of intensive care medicine. Sound provides comprehensive critical care programs to hospitals across the country. To learn more about our programs and career opportunities, visit www.soundphysicians.com. And now, your host, Dr. Sergio Zanotti. Fever occurs frequently in ICU patients. It is often an indicator of infection, but can have multiple non-infection causes in critically ill patients. In today's episode of the podcast, we will discuss the evaluation of new fever in the ICU adult patient. Our guest is Dr. Andre Khalil, a critical care and infectious disease physician. Dr. Khalil is professor in the Division of Infectious Disease and director of Transplant Infectious Disease at the University of Nebraska Medical Center. A renowned clinician, educator, and researcher, Dr. Kali has received multiple distinctions, including the 2021 Scientist Laureate Award at UNMC. Dr. Kali is an author of multiple peer-reviewed publications and is one of the co-authors of the 2023 Society of Critical Care Medicine and the Infectious Disease Society of America Guidelines for Evaluating New Fever in Adult Patients in the ICU. Andre, welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much, Sergio. Really a pleasure to be here. So I would like to start with uh, asking you, why should critical care clinicians care about this clinical guideline or this topic of new fever in the ICU? Yeah, so um, very important question. The uh, fever is really something that uh, we deal uh, pretty much every day in the ICU. And uh, there are so many you know, causes of fever that uh, it, it becomes sometimes quite complex and difficult to discern uh, the reason for the fever and some some of the reasons can be quite uh, severe, quite serious. Some of the reasons uh, quite mild. Some of the uh, reasons can be just secondary to the natural history of some uh, surgical procedure. But the reality is, it is critical for us uh, at the bedside to really uh, understand the reason for the fever because that can be something uh, quite relevant for the management uh, and the treatment of the patient. Perfect. And I know that, as we mentioned in the intro, you've been part of the 2023 clinical guidelines, which were an update of 2008, and are really focused on adult patients who are uh, not immunocompromised, although I would imagine that a lot of the, the, uh, the discussion also applies to immunocompromised patients, but that's a little bit out of the scope. But what I wanted to, to ask you uh, to start the discussion is, how did you define in the guidelines fever in the ICU patient? So, you know, the, the definition that we use on the guideline was uh, the temperature of 38.3 Celsius. And uh, that that's pretty much kind of the number that uh, has been used um, in a large, um, you know, in a large historical cohorts and uh, population studies, um, trials. But but we in the first you know in the first paragraph of this fever section of guideline we we spend a little more time trying to explain to the reader that uh, there are nuances on this and this is really really important because you know we we as as a clinician I cannot really uh, wait for a specific cutoff uh, to define fever in a good number of my patients uh, I'll give an example. If you have somebody that is, if you have a patient that is, uh, let's say, 25 years old uh, with meningitis, uh, likely you're going to see a very brisk uh, fever uh, in these patients. They usually have a uh, pretty um, uh, robust 
uh, immunological system, inflammatory reaction, uh, and, and you're going to see fever quite high, quite fast. But on, on the other side, if you have a patient in ICU that is uh, you know, um, 80 years old, uh, let's say even with meningitis, uh, let's let's use the same syndrome, right? the same infectious process. Um, it's very unlikely that the patient is going to have the same risk response as the 25-year-old, and it may take longer for the patient to develop fever, or the patient uh, may not even develop significant fever. So the point here is that you know, while uh, we we do use the 38.3 as the usual uh, fever cutoff, uh, you really have to individualize to your patient. I'll give another example. I have um, a, a substantial number of immunocompromised patients, uh, solid organ transplant patients, bone marrow transplant patients, in which they they chronically take medications that uh, that make uh, the fever spike uh, much more difficult to happen. Uh, and a lot of times they know their baseline temperatures. One of the things we talked in the guideline is that uh, if the patients already know where they live in terms of range of temperatures, uh, that can be very helpful because sometimes just one degree above whatever baseline they live can be something quite substantial uh, and can be defined as fever. So really uh, try to avoid fixed cutoffs uh, and try to individualize the temperature according to your patient's age, patient comorbidities, patient medications, uh, because that's going to be way more meaningful for you to define fever than using, uh, you know, one size fits all for, you know, certain numbers. So that's that's kind of the latitude that we provide in a guideline. Perfect. And, and I think like all guidelines, right, they're anchors, they're frameworks for us to organize our approach. But at the end of the day, we have to think of the individual patient in front of us and use our clinician hat and also understand that there's sometimes there's subtleties that are unique to the clinical situation that we are dealing with. The second um, question I wanted to follow up that was, uh, obviously when we think of fever, most clinicians immediately jump into the thought of an infection, but in the ICU patient, there are many non-infectious causes of fevers. Could you just give us maybe a quick commentary, Andre, on some of the most relevant ones that we should at least keep in the back of our of our mind when we're evaluating new fever in the ICU? Absolutely, Sergio. So the uh, you know we we tend to when we're in medical school and in training, we we there's a tendency for all of us to associate um, fever with infection. It's almost like a you know a new reflex, but uh, the reality is there are many, many causes of fever in the ICU that are uh, not related to infection. And this is not just semantics or just like, oh, you know, just a little bit of a differential diagnosis. It is critical because some of these causes of fever actually uh, demand, uh, you know, a whole different uh, diagnostic and treatment approach that can actually impact uh, in the outcome of the patient. For instance, uh, you can be admitted to the ICU with uh, uh, with uh, fever of, um, you know, unclear source, and turns out that the patient, for instance, has a massive myocardial infarction. Uh, it takes a little bit sometimes uh, for the diagnosis to be made, but um, you can have fever simply from uh, the, uh, the fact that the patient is getting a myocardial infarction. Sometimes patients have a uh, adrenal insufficiency that uh, were not diagnosed before the patient comes to the ICU, and adrenal insufficiency itself we require, uh, you know, uh, steroids and, and other treatments uh, that, you know, actually, uh, in, in order to be treated, in order not only to, you know, bring the fever down, but in order to be treated. And the same with MI. I mean, you're going to treat MI with thrombolytics, whatever needs to be done. 
um, is not going to be antibiotics. The same way patients, I mean, we see commonly patients with pancreatitis. We are a referral center for a liver transplant, and a lot of times patients have chronic pancreatitis and, uh, and, and sometimes end up even with a um, pancreatic um, uh, transplantation as well. Uh, and this itself can cause significant fever, and sometimes it's very difficult to distinguish fever from a, a, a uh, just an acute pancreatitis on top of chronic pancreatitis with, uh, let's say, uh, with uh, necrotizing pancreatitis. Um, for instance, another situation that's very common in the ICU we are a referral center for oncology patients and bone marrow patients, and uh, and sometimes uh, you see uh, patients with a uh, tumor lysis syndrome, uh, patients with transplant rejection, and all these things that we approach in a guideline are really important uh, syndromic process that can cause substantial fever, uh, can simulate infectious process, but actually require a whole different uh, treatment approach. So. To look for non-infectious cause of fever is really important because that can change the management dramatically uh, in order to know exactly what the patient needs. So when when we see this patient is at the bedside, you have to have your open your mind pretty open to both infectious and non-infectious sources uh, of fever. Perfect. How would you recommend, or how do the guidelines recommend that we measure body temperature in critically ill patients? That was uh, something that uh, it really took a, uh, uh, a substantial amount of time and discussion among the, uh, uh, the guideline members because uh, it, is, uh, it is really important to define how can we do this in a way that uh, can be more systematic, it can be more practical, uh, and can be available as well in the ICU. Uh, it turns out that uh, we don't have any uh, any of the kind of the usual traditional methods that can uh, can prove to be superior to the more rigorous methods that we've used in the past, and we don't use so much in SU, but uh, that we've used in the past, for instance, with the pulmonary catheter, with um, a bladder uh, catheter, with uh, esophageal probes. Uh, so all this, this you know, both the bladder catheter and esophageal probes that still we have available in SUs, we don't use so much more the PA catheters as we used in the past. But these really bring uh, a much more reliable measurement of the central uh, temperature. However, um, not every ICU is going to have uh, catheters, uh, uh, you know, probes, and 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 even less esophageal probes. So, the reality is that if by any chance the patient is, does not have any kind of these more rigorous uh, kind of methods, then um, I would, you know, the next step in terms of uh, measuring uh, temperature will be rectal and uh, oral temperatures. And even though uh, both rectal and oral temperatures are not also that simple because uh, it, it really each one has its barriers. Um, let's say, you know, uh, oral if the patient's intubated or having uh, issues related to the oropharyngeal area. Um, and so, but we found looking into the all evidence that rectal and oral temperatures are more reliable uh, than uh, tympanic and and some of these skin probes and temporal probes and so forth. Uh, so the uh, seems that they are they're really they just become a little more reliable in terms of uh, you know measuring every day. the The tympanic uh, temperatures that also are used frequently in different places requires 
way more uh, maintenance calibration and and actually can end up with a one to two degrees uh, uh, you know wrong uh, temperature in terms of either upper or, or or lower temperature so the point is the reason why we didn't recommend uh, team panics because it seems to be way more variable and less predictable than rectal and oral temperature so that's why we uh, at the end look in, into all the evidence uh, we believe that in the absence of a esophageal or bladder probe, um, the most reliable, reliable sites to measure are going to be oral and rectal. Uh, and this is this is important because whatever method you choose in the ICU, you want to make sure that you have a consistent a consistent approach, meaning that you don't want to use one method here, one method there, one method one day, one method a day, because that's going to really make the comparison very hard. I mean, when you change the method, you change the variability. Once you change the variability, uh, you may end up with you know taking action when actually all you're seeing is the variability between the methods. So whatever method you choose, try to make sure that you have that consistently used uh, in your ICU. And I think uh, it's always interesting, right? Like how for anything we do in medicine, there are layers of evidence and maybe not the perfect evidence, but there's always a lot to be learned. And you mentioned tympanic and maybe skin temperature, which unfortunately, because they're practical, have become widespread throughout ICUs in the country. But yet those are the, the least uh, accurate, right? And I think it's important for our right. clinicians to understand what the evidence says regarding temperature me uh, measurement. Very important, Sergio. Actually, you know, sometimes what's the most practical is not the most accurate. And this is one good example. So every time I'm on call, Andre, I will get a, uh, almost every single time I'm on call, I get a call from a nurse for a patient who has in fever asking for treatment. What is the current recommendation based on the available evidence in terms of treating a, a fever itself with antipyretic medications? So a uh, very important question, Sergio. The, um, generally speaking, let's say, let's, 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 let me divide this answering two you know in two factors one it is if it is in, if if it is infection related let's say if you think that the fever is infection related most of the time the, the vast majority of the times fever is really a part of the immunological response to the infection actually fever uh, tends to increase the recruitment of uh, you know lymphocytes t cells b cells and it, it's part of how we defend ourselves against the infection so you know, low-grade fever, actually, it's something that uh, it very likely can be beneficial uh, in most of the infections process. The problem is um, when the fever starts to get to a level where it can compromise the hemodynamics of the patient. So when, you know, if you're talking, let's say, in a non-infectious process, like a malignant hyperthermia or a patient with some kind of neurological disorder that can, uh, in which the fever can trigger seizures or something, uh, you, you know, of that complexity. So these are situations where maybe, you know, it's not unreasonable for us to have a lower threshold to use antipyretics. But uh, the guideline looking for most of the reasons that uh, that cause fever in the ICU does not suggest the immediate treatment with uh, any uh, antithermic approach, including antipyretics, just because most of the times they will not be beneficial, including patients with sepsis. There were several uh, sepsis clinical trials done in the past in the last couple of decades 
looking for the use of antipyretics as potentially uh, something that could benefit the um, outcome and survival of these patients and didn't do anything. Uh, actually, there are, there are animal studies showing that actually uh, abrogating the fever can potentially even be harmful. Uh, so the point is, there is really no data of benefits. Um, there is no, there is data showing no benefits actually, given antibiotics as a general rule. So I think the to make the answer, you know, quite objective is that we do not recommend as a general approach the use of antibiotics, but in special situations in which the temperature can really be detrimental to the patient, either because of the level of the temperature or because of the underlying disease like a neurological disease uh, or, or some, some a patient, let's say, in post-cardiac arrest and situation that temperature can be detrimental, then there's a situation that it is okay to use antipyretics. So I think we give a little bit of this uh, latitude to the clinician, but in general, uh, it will not be very useful. Yeah. And I think that's an important point because another commonly, I, I think, utilized treatment in the ICU that really does has no evidence and we've been just doing it because that's what we've been doing for a long time. So I think having that that pause to think about it is it really indicated uh, and the situation probably will help. Uh, just, I mean, at a very superficial level, Andre, and this was not a, a focus of the guidelines, and then we'll go into the further evaluation, but any general comments on um, your stand as an ID, a physician on uh, empiric, antimicrobial, antifungal, antiviral therapy, in the ICU, obviously, like you mentioned at the beginning, not all fever is infectious, but if it is infectious and the patient's sick, probably getting the right treatment soon is very important. Yes. Um, so it, it, one of the things that really, um, in my practice, I emphasize very much to all my trainees and colleagues is that if I do believe that uh, by my initial clinical assessment, uh, the cause of the fever is infectious. Uh, it is, especially for the patients critically ill in the ICU, times of essence, absolutely times of essence. And 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 uh, I I believe that there's nothing uh, nothing wrong and nothing risky about actually starting antimicrobials uh, according to the history and physical examination if uh, if you have a uh, a good suspicion of infectious process causing the fever. So I think this is really important because, uh, you know, in the worst case scenario, if, if your if your clinical judgment is wrong and and turns out that patient does not have infectious process, you can always stop antibiotics in the next 24, 48 hours. You don't need to keep giving this, you know, for a long time. But if you are right uh, and if your suspicion of infection is high and you're right you really may end up uh, not only uh, improving uh, the treatment of your patient, but you may end up in improving the chances of uh, surviving uh, from this infection because um, there is plenty of data showing that in patients that are uh, that are really critically ill, uh, secondary to infection, uh, they can benefit from the early administration of antibiotics, especially in patients that are in septic shock. But uh, the point is, you know, sometimes it's very hard to distinguish which patients will benefit more or less. I'll give an example. Uh, some patients that are quite immunocompromised, uh, let's say patients that are uh, taking, uh, let's say, tacrolimus, uh, myphoric, and, and steroids for years from a solar organ transplant, um, a lot of times these patients will uh, come uh, without a lot of symptoms of infection, but you already know the patients, you already 
know the history of this patient, the history of infection. A patient is probably having, like, let's say, a recurrent infection uh, of, let's say, a pneumonia or a UTI or something that uh, you already know the likelihood that this patient is is developing a, a substantial infection, but the patient is not showing, you know, like the overt clinical signs and symptoms. Uh, this is the type of patient that um, start antibiotics early is going to be uh, critical uh, because uh, these patients will uh, crash and burn very fast uh, if you do not start antibiotics uh, on time, especially because they're already very immunocompromised. So the point is, again, you know, we have to individualize the situation. Uh, we have to be aggressive about starting antibiotics when they have a suspicion, and we have to be aggressive about stopping antibiotics when the patient does not have infection. So in, in my own practice, um, yes, if I have somebody in the ICU critically with fever and I do have a suspicion of infection, I will start empirical antibiotics until um, until I get a better understanding of both the diagnosis and the natural history of the situation. Perfect. Let's talk about imaging studies and critically ill patients with new fever. How would you approach a, a patient who's been in the ICU, now has a fever? What are the imaging uh, tests that you would order? How would you think about it? And what do the guidelines recommend? So... The guideline recommends chest X-ray as a as a uh, kind of a general rule for patients with fever with ICU, and I think it's reasonable because um, you know with a plain chest X-ray you can catch uh, the beginning of an pneumonia, you can catch uh, a pleural effusions, you can catch abscess, you can catch pneumothoraces. I mean, so many things you can diagnose with a very simple and quick an image like a chest X-ray. So I think it's it's just reasonable to believe that chest x-rays should be part of your uh, initial approach, uh, especially when, you know, you're just kind of first seeing the patient. So I, I think it's very reasonable. It's available. It's uh, it's safe. You know, you don't need to get the patient out of the suit. You usually can do it at the bedside. Uh, so I think that's that's something that I think is quite reasonable that the guideline recommends a general rule. Now, all the other image, uh, all, all the other image tests uh, will depend on the history and physical examination. Let me give an example. We uh, we suggest um, uh, the addition, let's say, of ultrasounds, uh, either you know uh, either POCUS or formal ultrasounds, uh, when there are indication uh, of a focus of infection. Uh, for instance, if you have somebody with a uh, abdominal pain uh, or uh, transaminases, uh, elevation of transaminases or bilirubin or ocrosis or suspicion of cholecystitis or suspicion for appendicitis. Uh, when you have somebody that really has uh, clinical uh, symptoms that uh, suggest uh, abdominal source of, of the fever and potentially the sepsis, then this is a situation where images definitely can benefit to uh, understand, you know, what is the extent of the infection and what needs to be done in terms of drainage or surgery. So um, that's when we recommend a uh, uh, the addition of ultrasounds and the addition of CT scans depends, again, depend on each situation. I think the bedside ultrasound can be quite useful just because it is uh, it, it is usually, you know, if it is available in the ICU, it's right there. Uh, you don't need to transport the patient to a, um, a CT scan uh, in another part of the hospital. It's less radiation. So it's there's a lot of benefits of doing um, the bedside ultrasound and I think can be quite useful. But, but we do not recommend just as a, um, uh, you know, doing just for doing, just in case, if you don't know where the fever is coming from, the, uh, the guidelines recommend that you have to really have some indication that um, uh, of the focus of the infection in order to maximize the yield 
of the ultrasound. I mean, I mean, it, and, and you think about this is like almost every test that we do in the ICU, you know, you have to have a little bit of a prior, correct? You have to have a little bit of a, a clinical suspicion of of the focus in order to um, do certain tests. And, and, and the image is the same. Uh, if you have, um, if you have a suspicion of a, let's say, of a respiratory infection, uh, and and by chest X-rays or by clinical symptoms, uh, you can go ahead and do a a bedside ultrasound uh, of the lungs, uh, lung ultrasound. You can look for parenchymal change. You can look for pleural effusion and so forth, and and can be useful. It can definitely be very useful to understand the extent of the infection of the lungs. But again, the same story. What's your prior? Correct. What's your clinical suspicion? We always go back to the you know history and physical examination to delineate which and which tests are going to have the, the higher probability to help you to define what's happening uh, with the patient. So we talk about uh, bedside ultrasounds, we talked about form ultrasounds, uh, we talked about CT scans of the chest, CT scans of the abdomen and pelvis. Uh, and, and when, and exceptionally, again, I say exceptionally because even in my practices, rarely uh, I would need to do that. If you reach a point where you really uh, are struggling to find the source uh, after you know extensive um, examination and image, including CT scans. Uh, potentially, you can think about doing PET scans. Again, I, I don't think that uh, we should recommend PET scans as a routine in any ways and, and in form because uh, it is a, a test that will uh, only uh, be helpful in, in very very exceptional situations. The vast majority of the situations in the ICU will be able to make the diagnosis by clinical examination and by traditional image like uh, X-ray, CT scans, and ultrasounds. But when you're really against the wall uh, in, in the situation where you don't know what's happening and you cannot find the source, uh, we recommend a PET scan uh, as a, uh, a potential um, tool uh, to uh, find, uh, you know, the focus of the infection because uh, it's a situation that uh, really becomes quite frustrating after a few days of investigation in, in which the patient um, does not have a diagnosis. But again, uh, I, I, I emphasize that this will be uh, more the exception than the rule. Perfect. And I, I've been in practice for many years. I'm sure I've had a couple of patients had PET scans, but I never ordered it myself. So I'm sure that by that time, I would hope that our critical care colleagues are are are, are um, brainstorming with our id colleagues at the bedside right <laughs> right exactly right i like the word brainstorming That's yeah. a good word. <laughs> so let's talk about blood cultures in the critically ill patient with fever first if you could just tell us what the current recommendation is in, t in terms of how many blood cultures how much blood and the timing of that and then i would like to hear your comments on what do we do or don't do when there's a central venous catheter in place yeah, Sergio, this is really important because um, I've had a few messages from friends and calls from friends after the deadline was published about this as well. And as you know, through the years, uh, you know, most hospitals and ICUs um, uh, learn to minimize the uh, the kind of the uh, you know the, the kind of the systematic collection of central line cultures for any reason because. Uh, uh, you know, at the end, when you see a lot of studies have shown the amount of um, blood cultures contamination from central lines, and sometimes people end up getting overtreated with unnecessary antibiotics. And 
So, you know, a lot of places now have rules and uh, and, uh, and and electronic health, uh, uh, records. Basically, when you order these uh, these cultures, a lot of places automatically go for two peripheral cultures to avoid the collection of central lines. And the idea here is to minimize the contamination. So this is, you know, it, I understand why this has been done uh, in many many places as part of controlling the uh, the unnecessary use of antibiotics for contaminated cultures but i wanted people to understand that our guideline is dealing with a different patient population this is not everyone in a hospital that is you know is not very ill or has uh, some fever or has a reason to have a culture and this is a patient that is critically ill requires an icu bed has fever uh, and, and and this is really important because this is not the same as a patient that's in the ward uh, very stable uh, that 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 still have other reasons has other reasons to have fever or infection. So, in a patient that is in the ICU is critically ill has fever, and if the patient has a central line and you don't know the reason why the patient has the fever, that's a situation where you have to uh, you have to uh, you know uh, literally sit with the, your whole team sit with the nurses and the clinicians and the trainees, everyone say, listen, this is a situation where I need a collection of blood from the central line and I need a collection of blood from the peripheral from the peripheral vein. I need both at the same time uh, because I want to know if by any chance the cause of this fever is coming from a central line infection. This is really, really important because a lot of our patients in ICU not only sometimes they have lines placed in the ICU, but sometimes they have lines placed outside the ICU for a long time. And I have patients come to the ICU with, uh, you know, dialysis catheters, with central line catheters for other reasons. They're getting fusion chemotherapy. And a lot of times they have these lines for weeks, sometimes for months, for a long time. Sometimes they're in the wards for a few weeks. So, so the fact that the patient has a central line, the fact that you don't know what's causing a fever, should be a big trigger for you to say, you know what, I have to collect blood from the central line and from the peripheral veins, because that's going to give you a sense of what's happening. The reason why we do that is because we already know that if you have a, a differential time of two hours or more uh, between the culture positive in the peripheral vein versus the culture positive in the central line, that's going to be a highly indicated that the patient has a central line infection and likely uh, the central line uh, will be eventually have to be removed, especially, especially if the patient is getting critically. So this is really important. The other thing I want to mention, Sergio, is that the uh, if you're going to collect blood from the central line, uh, the guideline recommends at least two lumens, uh, two lumens from the central line. A lot of the central lines have two lumens, three lumens or more. And the reason why is because um, if you collect at least from two lumens, you're going to increase the yield of catching uh, an infection that is uh, contaminating or uh, infecting the uh, the scatter. So it is important to to make sure that you you you, you get this procedure done. The last thing I want to mention about the blood cultures that's important is the yield of the blood cultures. Whatever blood cultures you do, whatever place you do is uh, is very very uh, proportionally related to the amount of blood that's collected. So if if the amount of blood collected is too small you may end up with a false negative blood culture when the patient is really getting septic and bacteremic. Uh, so you don't want to get into the situation. You really want to catch these bugs if they are 
in the bloodstream. So you want to at least put a minimum of 10 ml in each bottle of this blood culture. The way the guideline recommends is that you can collect uh, uh, two bottles of, for aerobic culture, one bottle for anaerobic culture, so three bottles for each site, so let's say three bottles from the, for the central line, three bottles for the peripheral vein culture, and it's going to be 10 ml in each. It's going to be about a total of 60 ml. This is really important because uh, if you if you skimp in the in the amount of blood you're collecting, you may end up with a, a false negative culture that can be quite detrimental to the approach to the treatment approach to the patients. So these are kind of the uh, uh, the general uh, approach that the guidelines recommend for these blood cultures. And like you mentioned, I think this is a, an important aspect of of care for practical reasons, but also. Um, with our emphasis on trying to reduce um, catheter-associated infection, bloodstream infections, I think people have sometimes gone too far in terms of not checking cultures. And uh, when the clinical situation uh, merits, we should do what's best for the patient. And understanding where that infection is coming from, obviously, is very, very important. And I think that time to, to positivity is something that people need to take into account and make sure that, like you mentioned, Andre, that we are measuring from the from more than one lumen in the in the central line when suspected, and getting also a peripheral one at the same time, and using that time to positivity to try to figure out if it's uh, the central line or not. And then, Serge, if, if you allow me, just one thing that I want to reemphasize: we, I'm sure that all of us working as you, we've we've read the, the sepsis guidelines and and other guidelines, but just emphasize again and repeat again that. Ideally, this culture should be collected um, uh, right before the antibiotics are being started. So you don't want to delay in any, in, in for any minutes the administration of antibiotics. But uh, we all know it takes time between putting the order again, the pharmacy to mix the antibiotics and bring to the ICU. That's the time to do blood cultures. The yield of getting a, a blood culture positive will be tremendously increased if they are collected before the initiation of antibiotics. So that's something that should be really a big effort in, in all ICUs. Perfect. On the same um, note, I guess, similar dynamic, when and how should we get urine cultures? Yeah, that, that really becomes uh, a little more complex than blood cultures because the problem with the urine cultures is that uh, they, they tend to really, uh, you know, be a little more difficult to really interpret because there is a... Uh, uh, a, a very common uh, process for contamination of urine, especially in ICU, because a lot of patients are going to be uh, hemodynamically unstable, requiring fully catheters, um, and becomes uh, very difficult sometimes to collect a uh, specimen, a urinary specimen that uh, can uh, can provide a reliable result. So the recommendation that so we the recommendation that we make in the guidelines is that uh, the urine really has to have uh, you know, pyuria, the patient has to have symptoms, uh, and and the collection has to be really as as sterile as possible. And and that includes patients that already have a full catheter. Uh, and in the vast majority of the times when patients um, develop fever in the ICU, uh, they already have a full catheter, either because before they came to the ICU or a few days before you are seeing a patient. And if the full catheter is really sitting there, uh, you basically, the way that you want to do, if you really are concerned about the urinary infection, uh, you're going to have to remove this folic catheter, put another folic catheter if the patient really needs, and collect urine from a fresh catheter. This this is going to really makes it's going to make your collection much more reliable uh, and much more 
uh, informative in terms of what to do with these results. If the patient has any uh, history of uh, UTIs, any you know history of lithiasis, um, hydronephrosis, uh, pyelonephritis, anything that's suggestive of UTI, uh, and and now you're collecting a sterile urine with a uh, pyuria, that's going to be a urine that really is going to go for culture for urine cultures and is going to is going to have a good yield to to bring pathogens that uh, that need to be treated. So the key point is. Uh, we recommend not collecting urine from patients that already have uh, any catheter, urinary catheter in place because at that point, um, uh, when the catheter is staying there, uh, the chance of contaminations are too high and you may end up treating the patient for a culture positive that has nothing to do with the fever, has nothing to do with what's happening. Uh, you may end up exposing a patient to unnecessary antibiotics when the patient needs another treatment approach. So this is... This is something that we uh, uh, we emphasize very much in the guideline. Perfect. And as we, we we move forward, what would be the the recommendation on testing for viral pathogens? Obviously, we're in the in the winter respiratory seasons around. Um, coming out of COVID nineteen pandemic, COVID still around. Uh, I have definitely diagnosed COVID in some of my patients in the ICU after several days. But uh, what's the current recommendation on viral pathogens? So they are they are quite useful in general because um, you know both the nasal swab and the pneumonia panel from the sputum both of them they they add a little bit of different information but uh, complementary information. Uh, so for you know patients that are intubated or not intubated, the if you have uh, a patient with a, um, uh, a with respiratory symptoms signs and symptoms, uh, definitely it's something quite useful to do because you can. Um, not only diagnosis a potential pathogen that is causing the symptoms, but also uh, you can define if the patient is going to need antibiotics or not, correct? So, for instance, um, you know, I see now, I'm just last few weeks, I was in service, I've seen patients with, uh, in the ICU with rhinovirus, parainfluenza 1, parainfluenza 3, metanumovirus, RSV. I mean, I've seen almost all respiratory viruses in the last few weeks, um, and the winter is just beginning. Um, so this, these are really important because some of these viruses have uh, specific antiviral treatment and some don't. And knowing which viruses are, are infecting uh, the patient or bringing the patient to SU are going to be really important because that's going to change your management. The other thing that I want to mention, Serge, that's very important is not only it's very easy and, and you're going to have the results in, you know, in one or two hours, but also it's very important to, to not forget that Patients can have a positive, um, you know, uh, viral pathogen, uh, um, you know, in a, in a panel, uh, and and the patient could have also a bacterial pathogen. That I'll give an example. I uh, I have a patient that uh, uh, last week that the patient had a uh, rhinovirus, uh, and uh, it turned out that the patient that the panel just showed rhinovirus, uh, and. Uh, and a patient is quite ill, um, developed respiratory failure, uh, end up needing to, to be intubated. Uh, and, and it turns out that, that after the intubation with the uh, trach aspirate, uh, the pneumonia panel showed a staphylococcus aureus, and the culture also showed staphylococcus aureus. So the point is, when the patient uh, was being seen outside the hospital, uh, it was all rhinovirus infection, came here to the hospital, was diagnosed with rhinovirus infection. Uh, progress to bacterial infection and end up with uh, staph wars pneumonia. So why this is important is because uh, the uh, 
we cannot forget that a lot of times in the ICU, you're going to see patients with uh, co-infections. And they don't need to be even immunocompromised. They can be immunocompromised or not. But about, you know, up to a third of the patients that have CAP, they have uh, co-infections with, uh, you know, between virus and bacteria. So that's something that uh, I want to make sure that people understand. The panel is going to be very important to define the, you know, what kind of pathogens are potentially uh, causing infection. But the, the panel will not define the entire history. If the patient is progressing, if the patient has a viral pathogen is progressing to a worse disease, it could be progression from the viral disease, like COVID could be a progression to a severe COVID, but could be a progression to a bacterial infection as well. So it's very important to keep that kind of diagnostic approach always up 24-7 to make sure that you understand if the progression to respiratory failure is secondary to the natural history of the virus or it is secondary to a post-viral bacterial infection. All these things have to be evaluated day by day uh, on real time to our patients. Perfect. And what about um, in closing the role of rapid biomarker tests like PCT and CRP? So PCT and CRP, uh, the way the guideline dealt with was uh, the following. Uh, we recommend that if you have a low uh, probability of infection based on your history and physical examination, you you know you just kind of don't know what's happening. You don't find uh, you don't find what's happening, but you know patients still having fever in the ICU. It is reasonable uh, to uh, you know to check either Procal or CRP, either one or both, whatever you have in your hospital. Each hospital has different uh, you know laboratory measurements, but it's reasonable because you you're a little bit lost. You don't know what's happening. The patient's having fever. There's two reasons to do this biomarkers. One is because if the biomarker comes uh, quite elevated. Uh, it's really is going to trigger you a, a you know a more aggressive approach looking for infection, looking for what's happening with this patient because even though the history and physical are you know not that impressive, now you end up let's say with a you know with a very high uh, PCT or a CRP that that's going to trigger you to think okay am I missing something what's happening here. Uh, the other reason for doing that is because, you know, once you get to biomarkers, and a lot of times when you get called to see these patients, the patient's already getting a couple of antibiotics. Let's say it turns out that the, the PCT and the CRP are, you know, normal, like 005, whatever, whatever, whatever normal is in your lab, it's really normal. There's nothing. You repeat next day, still normal. So, you know, now you start to see that you don't find a focus of infection. The patient's doing well. Uh, and the biomarkers are completely normal, uh, even, you know, when you measure sequentially. Well, that's a situation where you can say, well, you know what, I think it's time to de-escalate antibiotics because I'm not seeing infection source of uh, fever. So these are these are the kind of the, the situations where the biomarkers can help. But I think really important, uh, Sergio, that I want to mention here, too, that we... Uh, we discussed as well in the HEPFAP guideline in the past, is that these biomarkers, uh, they they alone, they are not sufficient to rule out infection. Let me tell you one example. You have somebody with um, a high suspicion of infection. This is what the guideline says, this guideline says. Let's say you have somebody with a high suspicion of infection. You really think the patient has infection causing a fever. If the Procal or the CRP comes normal, Really, it does. It should not change your management. The biomarker being normal initially should not change your management. Meaning that if you think the patient has a infection causing a fever and the critically ill situation, you give the antibiotics, you treat the patient, 
independent of these biomarkers because the biomarkers can take a while sometimes to go up, sometimes they don't go up very much. So the point is they are not good for you to really rule out infection, but they are good for you to understand what's happening with the patient in terms of uh, a need for antibiotics in the next couple of days. They can help you to complement when you have a low suspicion and you don't know what's happening with the patient, but they will alone never be decisive about what needs to be done. Remember, these biomarkers are only complementary and you have to take with a grain of salt because, again, your clinical assessment, your physical examination will be critical. Uh, and if you have a high suspicion of infection, these biomarkers are not going to be very useful because you already know the patient has infection. There's nothing that you're going to gain at that point in terms of diagnostics. That's why we do not recommend biomarkers for patients that you already know that have infection source for the fever. And I think it's very similar to how you might use um, D-dimers in the ED to rule out low suspicion PE, but it's not something very useful when you when you have a high suspicion. And I think it, like you mentioned, probabilities based theorem applies everywhere in in medicine, and using that appropriately is very important. Andre, really a, a lot of very I think uh, practical uh, evidence based. Uh, pearls here that uh, apply to daily situations in our ICU. So almost every day, I would imagine, at every one of our ICUs, there's somebody with a fever. And uh, how to um, follow up on that, how to uh, approach our uh, those patients, I think is very important. These guidelines are a great uh, tool for our clinicians, and we'll link them, obviously, in the previous guidelines in the show notes. As we close, Andre, we like to tap into the wisdom of our guest outside of the clinical topic with a couple of questions. Would that be okay? Absolutely. So the first question relates to books. Are there any books that you that have influenced you significantly or that you have gifted uh, often to others? So yeah, there's so many books. It's it's a tough question always, no, Sergio, because, you know, we, we, we like so many different things. Uh, but uh, it, 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 I would say that there's one book that really uh, it, it was very impactful to me uh, many years ago. Uh, it's already a little old, it's like in early 2000, but it's just absolutely fantastic book. It's a book titled Splendid Solution uh, by Jeffrey Kluger. Uh, basically, the book is about Jonas Salk and the conquest of polio. Uh, and the reason why this book uh, is so uh, phenomenal to me is because it, it shows the struggles and the barriers and 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 in all the efforts that Jonas Salk went through to develop the polio vaccine. Uh, and this is really uh, remarkable because uh, we are talking about 1950s and everything you're gonna read in this book is applicable to 2023. Um, uh, basically, Jonas Salk was uh, believed that um, the vaccine he developed was an inactivated polio vaccine really would be effective. And he went against a lot of people that thought that this vaccine wouldn't work or potentially could be even harmful. Uh, and why this is important? Because Jonas Salk being in the middle of a horrendous uh, polio epidemic in the U.S., uh, was able to do a clinical trial uh, that uh, had even placebo arm uh, that, uh, that changed the history of the world. Jonas Salk uh, clinical trial, um, it was a, uh, a, a randomized trial that really changed everything that we do today. I mean, we, without, without the polio trial, uh, unlikely we would be developing so fast what, we, what happened during the COVID pandemic with the new vaccines. Uh, vaccine trials uh, require randomization, vaccine trials require placebo, and, and that's really what was done in the 1950s, it was basically the very first 
vaccine trial done uh, with so much uh, rigor. And and that book, it, to me, is a book that uh, it should be probably part of medical school's curriculum all over the world. Excellent. And I think, like you said, very timely to what we've lived recently, but also good science, right? It transcends the years. And uh, you, when you said it's an old book, you reminded me of my grandfather who instilled, I mean, a, a love to read and myself. And, and he would always tell me that old books are good because only the good ones get to be old, right? So <laughs> he would say that in Italian, but I think that that is uh, very true. <laughs> so the second question is uh, something that you believe to be true in medicine or life that most other people don't believe or don't act like they believe. Uh, that's 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 great, Sergio. So what I would say is that, uh, you know, um, you know I, I proud myself to being a really, uh, a, you know, a, a clinician that really does everything possible and possible for my patients. I really, you know, I just I just love it, uh, being at a bedside and, and, and seeing my patients improving. And I think that's the lesson that I've learned throughout these years is that um, being humble is really critical for us. What I mean being humble is we have to understand our limitations. We have to accept our limitations. We have to accept the uncertainty of medicine. If you do not accept that uncertainty, um, uh, likely uh, you're going to be end up not really treating well your patients. And the reason why I say that is because the moments that we accept our limitations, the moment we accept uh, that medicine has uncertainty, we have to deal with uncertainty. You're going to look for the best that can be done for your patient. You're going to still be thinking, what else can I do to improve the care of my patient? And the guidelines, uh, like uh, like clinical trials, all they do is they minimize the uncertainty of the medical knowledge, the medical evidence, correct? So what the guidelines do is they minimize uncertainty, but they don't remove the uncertainty. The same with clinical trials. So our job at the bedside is to translate what we see in the randomized trials, what we see in the guidelines to our patients. In order to make this translation, in order to apply this evidence, we have to understand the uncertainty, we have to understand the limitations of the data, we have to understand the limitations that we have at the bedside and really invest in in, in trying to really discover and, and improve the care of our patients by accepting that uncertainty exists and and that's part of how you know how we can really do better at the bedside so i think being humble and and understanding that we have much to improve much to do for our patients is critical for us to really um, do better uh, at the bedside andre i think that's a perfect place to stop i really want to thank you for sharing your expertise and your time with us and for being part of these guidelines that like you said are important in decreasing the uncertainty at the bedside. But uh, I agree 100%. Humility is probably the number one uh, attribute that a scientist and a physician should have at the bedside. Thanks so much for this great conversation, Sergio, and congratulations on the podcast. I, I really enjoyed it very much. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Critical Matters, a sound podcast. Make sure to subscribe to Critical Matters on Apple or Google Podcasts and share with your network. Sounds transforming the way critical care is provided in hospitals across the country. To learn more, visit www.soundphysicians.com.